abjection. No beast is there without glimmer of infinity, no eye so vile nor abject that brushes not against lightning from on high, now tender, now fierce. Victor Hugo, La Légende de Siècle. Neither subject nor object. There looms within abjection one of those violent, dark revolts of being, directed against a threat that seems to emanate from an exorbitant outside or inside, ejected beyond the scope of the possible, the tolerable, the thinkable. It lies there quite close, but it cannot be assimilated. It beseeches, worries, and fascinates desire, which, nevertheless, does not let itself be seduced. Apprehensive, desire turns aside. Sickened, it rejects. A certainty protects it from the shameful. A certainty of which it is proud holds on to it. But simultaneously just the same, that impetus, that spasm, that leap is drawn toward an elsewhere as tempting as it is condemned. Unflaggingly, like an inescapable boomerang, the vortex of summons and repulsion replaces the one, haunted by it literally beside himself. When I am beset by abjection, the twisted braid of affects and thoughts I call by such a name does not have, properly speaking, a definable object. The abject is not an object facing me, which I name or imagine, nor is it an object, an otherness, ceaselessly fleeing in a systematic quest of desire. What is abject is not my correlative, which, providing me with someone or something else as support, would allow me to be more or less detached and autonomous. The abject has only one quality of the object, that of being opposed to I. If the object, however, through its opposition, settles me within the fragile texture of a desire for meaning, which, as a matter of fact, makes me ceaselessly and infinitely homologous to it, what is abject, on the contrary, the jettisoned object, is radically excluded and draws me towards the place where meaning collapses. A certain ego that merged with its master, a superego, has flatly driven it away. It lies outside beyond the set and does not seem to agree to the latter's rules of the game. And yet, from its place of banishment, the abject does not cease challenging its master. Without a sign for him, it beseeches a discharge, a convulsion, a crying out. To each ego its object, to each superego its abject. It is not the white expanse or slack boredom of repression, not the translations and transformations of desire that wrench bodies, nights, and discourse. Rather, it is a brutish suffering that I puts up with, sublime and devastated, for I deposits it to the father's account. Verso per, perversion. I endure it, for I imagine that such is the desire of the other, a massive and sudden emergence of uncanniness which, familiar as it might have been in an opaque and forgotten life, 
now harries me as radically separate, loathsome. Not me, not that, but not nothing either, a something that I do not recognize as a thing. A weight of meaninglessness about which there is nothing insignificant and which crushes me. On the edge of non-existence and hallucination, of a reality that, if I acknowledge it, annihilates me. There, abject and abjection are my safeguards, the primers of my culture, the improper, unclean. Loathing an item of food, a, f a piece of filth, waste or dung, the spasms and vomiting that protect me, the repugnance, the retching that thrusts me to the side and turns me away from defilement, sewage, and muck. The shame of compromise, of being in the middle of treachery. The fascinated start that leads me towards and separates me from them. Food loathing is perhaps the most elementary and most archaic form of abjection. When the eyes see or the lips touch that skin on the surface of milk, harmless, thin as a sheet of cigarette paper, pitiful as a nail paring, I experience a gagging sensation and, still further down, spasms in the stomach, the belly, and all the organs shrivel up in the body, provoke tears and bile, increase heartbeat, cause forehead and hands to perspire. Along with sight-clouding dizziness, nausea makes me balk at that milk cream, separates me from the mother and father who proffer it. I want none of that element, sign of their desire. I do not want to listen. I do not assimilate it. I expel it. But since the food is not an other for me, who am only in their desire, I expel myself. I spit myself out. I abject myself within the same motion through which I claim to establish myself. That detail, perhaps an insignificant one, but one that they ferret out, emphasize, evaluate, that trifle turns me inside out, guts sprawling. It is thus that they see that I am in the process of becoming an other at the expense of my own death. During that course in which I become, I give birth to myself amid the violence of sobs, of vomit. Mute protest of the symptom, shattering violence of a convulsion that, to be sure, is inscribed in a symbolic system, but in which, without either wanting or being able to become integrated, in order to answer to it, it reacts, it abreacts, it abjects. The corpse, or cadaver, cadere, to fall, that which has irremediably become a cropper, is cesspool and death. It upsets even more violently the one who confronts it as fragile and fallacious chance. A wound with blood and pus, where the sickly acrid smell of sweat, of decay, does not signify death. In the presence of signified death, a flat 
encephalograph, for instance, I would understand, react, or accept. No, as in true theater, without makeup or masks, refuse and corpses show me what I permanently thrust aside in order to live. These body fluids, this defilement, this shit, are what life withstands, hardly and with difficulty, on the path of death. There, I am at the border of my condition as a living being. My body extricates itself as being alive from that border. Such wastes drop so that I might live until, from loss to loss, nothing remains in me and my entire body falls beyond the limit. Kadere, cadaver. If dung signifies the other side of the border, the place where I am not, and which permits me to be, the corpse, the most sickening of wastes, is a border that has encroached upon everything. It is no longer I who expel, I is expelled. The border has become an object. How can I be without border? That elsewhere that I imagine beyond the present, or that I hallucinate so that I might, in a present time, speak to you, conceive of you. It is now here, jetted, abjected, into my world. Deprived of world, therefore, I fall in a faint, in that compelling, raw, insolent thing, in the morgue's full sunlight, in that thing no longer matches, and therefore no longer signifies anything. I behold the breaking down of a world that has erased its borders, fainting away. The corpse, seen without God and outside of science, is the utmost of abjection. It is death infecting life, abject. It is something rejected from which one does not part, from which one does not protect oneself as from an object. Imaginary uncanniness and real threat, it beckons to us and ends up engulfing us. It is thus not lack of cleanliness or health that causes abjection, but what disturbs identity, system, order. What does not respect borders, positions, rules? The in-between, the ambiguous, the composite, the traitor, the liar, the criminal with a good conscience, the shameless rapist, the killer who claims he is a savior. Any crime, because it draws attention to the fragility of the law. It is abject, but premeditated crime, cunning murder, hypocritical, hypocritical revenge, are even more so because they heighten the display of such fragility. He who denies morality is not abject. There can be grandeur in amorality, and even in crime, that flaunts its disrespect for the law. Rebellious, liberating, and suicidal crime. Abjection, on the other hand, is immoral, sinister, scheming, and shady. A terror that disassembles, a hatred that smiles, a passion that uses the body for barter instead of inflaming it, a debtor who sells you up, a friend who stabs you. 
In the dark halls of the museum that is now what remains of Auschwitz, I see a heap of children's shoes, or something like that. Something I have already seen elsewhere, under a Christmas tree, for instance. Dolls, I believe. The abjection of Nazi crime reaches its apex when death, which in any case kills me, interferes with what, in my living universe, is supposed to save me from death. Childhood, science, among other things. If it be true that the abject simultaneously besieges and pulverizes the subject, one can understand that it is experienced at the peak of its strength when that subject, weary of fruitless attempts to identify with something on the outside, finds the impossible within. When it finds that impossible constitutes its very being, that it is none other than abject. The abjection of self would be the culminating form of that experience of the subject, to which it is revealed that all its objects are merely based on the inaugural loss that laid the foundations of its own being. There is nothing like the abjection of self to show that all abjection is in fact recognition of the want on which any being, meaning, language, or desire is founded. One always passes too quickly over this word, want, and today psychoanalysts are finally taking into account only its more or less fetishized product, the object of want. But if one imagines, and imagine one must, for it is the working of imagination whose foundations are being laid here. The experience of want itself as logically preliminary to being and object, to the being of the object. Then one understands that abjection, and even more so abjection of self, is its only signified. Its signifier, then, is none but literature, Mystical Christendom turned this abjection of self into the ultimate proof of humility before God. Witness Elizabeth of Hungary, who, though a great princess, delighted in nothing so much as in abasing herself. The question remains as to the ordeal, a secular one this time, that abjection can constitute for someone who, in what is termed knowledge of castration, turning away from perverse dodges, presents himself with his own body and ego as the most precious non-objects. They are no longer seen in their own right, but forfeited, abject. The termination of analysis can lead us there, as we shall see. Such are the pangs and delights of masochism. Essentially different from uncanniness, more violent too, abjection is elaborated through a failure to recognize its kin. Nothing is familiar, not even the shadow of a memory. I imagine a child who has swallowed up his parents too soon, who frightens himself on that account, all by himself, and to save himself, rejects and throws up everything that is given to him, all gifts, all objects. He has, he could have, a sense of the abject, even before things for him are, hence before they are signifiable, he drives them out, 
dominated by drive as he is, and constitutes his own territory, edged by the adjunct. A sacred configuration. Fear cements his compound, conjoined to another world, thrown up, driven out, forfeited. What he has swallowed up instead of maternal love is an emptiness, or rather a maternal hatred without a word for the words of the father. That is what he tries to cleanse himself of tirelessly. What solace does he come upon within such loathing? Perhaps a father, existing but unsettled, loving but unsteady, merely an apparition, but an apparition that remains. Without him, the holy brat would probably have no sense of the sacred. A blank subject he would remain, discomfited, at the dump, for non-objects that are always forfeited, from which, on the contrary, fortified by abjection, he tries to extricate himself. For he is not mad, he through whom the abject exists. Out of the days that has petrified him, before the untouchable, impossible, absent body of the mother, a daze that has cut off his impulses from their objects, that is, from their representations, out of such days he causes, along with loathing, one word to crop up, fear. The phobic has no other object than the abject, but that word, fear, a fluid haze, an elusive clamminess, no sooner has it cropped up than it shades off like a mirage and permeates all words of the language with non-existence, with a hallucinatory, ghostly glimmer. Thus, fear having been bracketed, discourse will seem tenable only if it is ceaselessly confronts that otherness, a burden both repellent and repelled, a deep well of memory that is unapproachable and intimate, the abject. Beyond the unconscious. Put another way, it means that there are lives not sustained by desire, as desire is always for objects. Such lives are based on exclusion. They are clearly distinguishable from those understood as neurotic or psychotic, articulated by negation and its modalities, transgression, denial, and repudiation. Their dynamics challenges the theory of the unconscious, seeing that the latter is dependent upon a dialectic of negativity. The theory of the unconscious, as is well known, presupposes a repression of contents, affects and presentations, that, thereby, do not have access to consciousness, but affect within the subject modifications, either of speech, parapraxis, etc., or of the body, symptoms, or both, hallucinations. As correlative to the notion of repression, Freud put forward that of denial as a means of figuring out neuroses, that of rejection, repudiation, as a means of situating psychosis. The asymmetry of the two repressions becomes more marked owing to denial's bearing on the object, whereas 
repudiation affects desire itself. Lacan, in perfect keeping with Freud's thought, interprets that as repudiation of the name of the father. Yet, facing the abject and more specifically phobia and the splitting of the ego, a point I shall return to, one might ask if those articulations of negativity germane to the unconscious inherited by Freud from philosophy and psychology have not become inoperative. The unconscious contents remain here excluded, but in strange fashion, not radically enough to allow for secure differentiation between subject and object, and yet clearly enough for a defensive position to be established. One that implies a refusal, but also a sublimating elaboration, as if the fundamental opposition were between I and other, or in more archaic fashion, between inside and outside. As if such an opposition subsumed the one between conscious and unconscious, elaborated on the basis of neuroses. Owing to the ambiguous opposition I, other, inside, outside, an opposition that is vigorous but pervious, violent but uncertain, there are contents, normally unconscious in neurotics, that become explicit, if not conscious, in borderline patients' speeches and behavior. Such contents are often openly manifested through symbolic practices. Without, by the same token, being integrated into the judging consciousness of those particular subjects, Since they make the conscious-unconscious distinction irrelevant, borderline subjects in their speech constitute propitious grounds for a sublimating discourse, aesthetic or mystical, rather than scientific or rationalist one. An exile who asks where. The one by whom the abject exists is thus a deject who places himself separates himself, situates himself, and therefore strays instead of getting his bearings, desiring, belonging, or refusing. Situationist in a sense, and not without laughter, since laughing is a way of placing or displacing abjection. Necessarily dichotomous, somewhat Manichaean, he divides, excludes, and without, properly speaking, wishing to know his abjections is not at all unaware of them. Often, moreover, he includes himself among them, thus casting with him himself the scalpel that carries out his separations. Instead of sounding himself as to his being, he does so concerning his place. Where am I instead of who am I? For the place, space that engrosses the deject, the excluded, is never one, nor homogeneous, homogeneous, nor totalizable, but essentially divisible, foldable, and catastrophic. A divisor of territories, 
languages, works. The deject never stops demarcating his universe, whose fluid confines, for they are constituted of a non-object, the adject, constantly question his solidity and impel him to start afresh. A tireless builder, the deject is in short, astray. He is on a journey during the night, the end of which keeps receding. He has a sense of the danger of the loss that the pseudo-object attracting him represents for him, but he cannot help taking the risk at the very moment he sets himself apart. And the more he strays, the more he is saved.